206. Time for Planet Watch with your host, Rachel Ann Goodman, Joe Jordan, and intern Tommy Martin at KSEO Santa Cruz. And we are streaming live on YouTube at KSEO Global. Welcome to Planet Watch, big solutions to Earth-sized problems. I'm Rachel Ann Goodman with Joe Jordan. And today on the program, the implications of the U.S. withdrawal from the Paris Accord. Plus an interview with Jerry Taylor. He's head of a think tank called the Niskanen Center, and they're proposing market solutions to global warming. Taylor was once a diehard climate skeptic. Find out what changed his mind and why it pains him personally, and especially at Thanksgiving dinners, that he helped his brother get a job at the country's biggest climate misinformation company, the Heartland Institute. That, plus science notes and phenomenon, plus a discussion of the withdrawal from the Paris Accords, coming up next on Planet Watch. Stay tuned. And if you want to ask our guests questions, well, you can't do that today, but you can ask us questions and ask questions of future guests and past guests by writing to us at radioplanetwatch at gmail.com. Again, radioplanetwatch at gmail.com. And we are streaming live on YouTube right now on Facebook. So go to Planet Watch on Facebook if you can and check us out. You can actually see what we look like. Could be better or worse. Joe's wearing a really colorful shirt, so check us out there. And, uh, you know, you can't directly uh, ask our guest today questions, but you can definitely ask him questions, and I got a bunch of questions for him. This, <laughs> this is going to be an amazing, terrific interview, and uh, he's not here personally directly in the studio, but uh, we will pass your questions along to him, and you can continue a very interesting and important dialogue. Absolutely. But first, this news. First, um. <laughs> first, you've got a story from NASA, who has launched 6,000 pounds of research equipment, cargo, and supplies aboard a SpaceX Dragon spacecraft. Uh, thousands of fruit flies will be sent for an experiment to learn more about the effects of prolonged exposure to microgravity. Uh, also on board... 40 mice will test a new drug to rebuild bone and block additional bone loss in crew members who often experience bone density loss or even osteoporosis due to a lack of gravity. A new solar panel technology, which makes the, planet, uh, makes the panels smaller, lighter, and more efficient, are also making the trip, along with an array of Earth-viewing instruments. You can watch the arrival and robotic arm capture of the dragon tomorrow morning at 8.30 a.m., Hey, what time zone is that, Jason? Eastern time. Okay, okay, well, so, a bunch of our listeners are around here on the West Coast, so that's <laughs> 5.30 in the morning, but hey, worth getting up for. Check yeah, it get out. get up early. Where, where do you go to watch, by the way? On NASA website. Oh, the NASA channel? Yes. Okay, or the NASA website. Yeah, sure, they said yeah. they'd have it live streaming on the NASA.gov, I think. Yeah. It says these mice will be testing this drug. Did they volunteer? <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> yeah, I was actually thinking, these mice are getting smart these days. They're administering these <laughs> tests. Uh, <laughs> but uh, actually, I had a little item to add on to that. Uh, and my only source on this <laughs> was last night's 11 o'clock news on TV. But I, I think it's probably true. I saw it on TV. Uh, SpaceX <laughs> did another thing. You, you probably already know this because you probably watched TV also. But it was the first ever successful or at least publicized and televised launch of a spacecraft that had already been launched and returned to the Earth. Um, I don't know the details on how far that one went after the other launch. I doubt it went all the way into orbit. <laughs> I think it just went up a long ways and then fell back in the ocean or whatever, and then they recovered it and they refurbished it and they launched it again. So that's pretty interesting. That's, uh, that's important for the future of space-faring uh, civilization and doing it reasonably inexpensively, <laughs> relatively. 
and these facts are recorded from the Boston Globe. In the wake of Mr. Trump's pledge to exit the Paris Climate Accord, 62.3% of Exxon shareholders staged a revolt. In a proxy vote, they demanded reports on how the oil corporation is negatively affecting the climate. Although the identities of the voters were confidential, financial companies such as BlackRock and Vanguard own around 13% of ExxonMobil stock. The vote urges the oil giant to be more transparent with projections and records. The ExxonMobil resolution, introduced by the New York State Common Retirement Fund, says that the company should analyze the impacts on ExxonMobil's oil and gas reserves and resources under a scenario in which reduction in demand results from carbon restrictions and related rules or commitments adopted by governments consistent with the globally agreed upon two degrees Celsius target. They also demanded a record book that reports the reserves and resources of ExxonMobil and the financial and environmental dangers the corporation may cause up until 2040 and beyond. Other oil companies and financial firms are following suit, it appears. Occidental Petroleum shareholders backed a similar resolution with a 58% majority. That majority included BlackRock in its first vote ever against the company's management over the climate issue. And that story read by Cade Pastelnik, one of our interns here on Planet Watch. And another intern's here with us to share another news story she found that would be of interest to listeners. Yeah, this is a, another story having to do with the uh, continuing rise in global temperature. Satellite data from the West Antarctic Ice Shelf has shown some shocking change. Larsen C, the name, the name given to the most northerly and largest ice shelf, is expected to shed an ice block measuring 5,000 square miles, about the size of Delaware. The iceberg expected to break off will be one of the largest ones ever recorded and will leave Larsen C one-tenth of the size smaller. The piece is not going to immediately add to sea level rise, but will leave the remainder of Larsen C weak and susceptible to extreme melting, with the potential to release vast amounts of water. If all the glaciers being held back by Larsen C were to collapse, the average global water level would increase four inches. The entire West Antarctic ice shelf that includes Larsen C contains the potential to increase global water level by 20 feet. Larsen A and Larsen B, which were part of the Antarctic ice shelf, have already collapsed within the last decade. Antarctica is warming faster than most places on the planet and will continue to heat up if a collective effort is not made to halt global temperature increase. And that was Carolyn King. So did they say anything about, you know, the time frame for when they expect that thing to actually crack off? Uh, I believe they're expecting it to go within the next month or so. Wow. Given that... Uh, it's about to be July, which is always generally the hottest recorded month of the year. Although in Antarctica, Antarctica, that is... It's hot. opposite. It's the coldest, actually. Cold. It's the austral winter there now, so maybe it'll be um, in February. Yeah, stay February, tuned. <laughs> stay tuned. We'll see. I don't know if you can get up at 530 in the morning tomorrow and watch it on your TV, but uh, anyway. Okay. Right, thank you for that. And um, we obviously have another big news story we are following here on Climate Watch, and many of you have already heard it hashed over quite a bit in the news, but we thought we'd talk about it here and some of the science implications thereof. Um, some will be heretofore unknown until time passes, um, but that is the exit, announced exit by Mr. Trump um, from the Paris Climate Accord. And that's been a story, um, much in the news. And there's been some interesting response around the world, especially from the scientific community, but not just, as we heard, not just the scientific community, but also shareholders in major petroleum companies as well. And apparently even the um, coal companies did not want the president to exit, and there was a big discussion. So I wanted to uh, spend a little bit of time with Joe just talking over some of the responses and analysis of what it means and how fast it might mean something um, to the rest of the world um, as far as real impact on the climate from the exit of the United States. Um, maybe you could start us, Joe, but just um, it's really hard to summarize what the Climate Accord is, but maybe give us a few points of what its basics are, what were, what were we committing to. And there's even some discussion of legally whether the United States can legally pull out, since it's not a treaty. And the other key thing is, uh, even if we can legally pull out, 
you know, we cannot do it uh, inside of a certain time frame. There is a time frame. It's going to take three or four years for us to get out of there. It's baked into the agreement itself that yeah. no, no member, no signatory can leave uh, before three years. That was considered... You know, they probably did that knowing that United States presidential terms are four years. <laughs> yeah, and, yeah. And, and we're not the uh, only ones that have four-year terms, right? So, you know, and, and um, well, my line on it, I just got to get it out before I forget, is that, uh, you know, uh, everybody should be concerned and blah, blah, this is not good. But I am not going around wringing my hands and fretting and losing sleep over it because the rest of the world is going to drag us screaming, kicking and screaming, into getting with the program more and doing more of the right thing. So, you know, Trump and the United States are not the big fish in the pond anymore. <laughs> I mean, when I was a kid, before most of the other people here and half of our listenership probably were born, in the 50s and the 60s, yeah, the United States was the big, you know, the superpower in the world. And then the Soviet Union came along with nuclear weapons. That was about the only way in which they were a superpower. But now the U.S. is one of many, many players, and we need to get used to that. But we are 20% of yeah, the world's we're a significant carbon. fraction. <laughs> let us not discount our impact on the world and, and let that be an excuse to just let the rest of the world lead without us. Yeah. And, and in fact, Jerry Brown leading California went right out the next day and started making climate par Paris climate-like agreements with a bunch of other states and uh, glomming states together to go mm -hmm. uh, stay in the accord. So we've got a situation in which states and governors and cities are, including Pittsburgh, which was mentioned by right. the president, are going rogue climate uh, change mm -hmm. protectors. And, and that's an interesting phenomenon right there. Yeah, and not only that, but two other levels that kind of bracket the state level and city level you just talked about. On the international scene, uh, China and the EU are now formalizing a pact or a an entity that's going to be a force to be reckoned with on global climate that will compete if uh, it has to come to that with the United States for all the fantastic jobs and uh, economic growth that will come from fighting, you know, climate chaos. Uh, and then on another level, financial, you know, personal business. Hey, uh, just on the way over here today, I was coming over with Tommy and uh, he told me about an item he just saw. Is it Mayor Bloomberg of New York City, I think? Yes. Really rich guy. Uh, I guess he's a billionaire. And he has said he's going to invest X number of million. I don't think it's billion, but thousand, thousand, X number, maybe $15 million 15, yeah. to do something about <laughs> helping. Uh, we well, part, check part this of the out. accord is the United States committed to three, I think it was 30 billion. No, it's $3 billion, sorry, um, dollars to help the process for other countries who are less wealthy than the United States. And we already paid $1 billion into it. Um, so I believe this was to keep the process going because the money to convene, even to talk amongst the other countries, largely was going to come from us. And so I believe that that $15 million is to keep the process, the dialogue going yeah. so that it was funded. So yeah. people could fly places, ironically, but maybe they could teleconference in. <laughs> you know, a number that uh, I realized that I don't know if we've introduced this on this show yet, but uh, an important number to, for everybody to hang your hats on. You hear all these numbers thrown about, about this many million dollars, this many gigatons or megatons of this and that and the other. The United States, no, the world, the world, human civilization every year emits roughly, I mean, plus or minus 35 billion, that's B with a, billion with a B, like a thousand million tons of carbon dioxide a year. I mean, it's plus and minus depending on how good the economy is in the world and all this, but roughly 35 billion tons. That's, that's gigatons. A megaton would be a million, uh, but a gigaton is a billion. And a billion, it would take you your whole life to count to one billion. <laughs> so just so you know, so all, these other, so all these other numbers we throw around, keep that in context. <laughs> We're going to go to a really interesting interview, which I think sheds light on a lot of this in just a moment. But I want to direct people to an article I thought was quite interesting. It was uh, written in uh, March, so before the official pullout from the Climate Accords, but when it was known. This has been known for a while. That's why this a big surprise and drama around it is... A little anticlimactic because a lot of the things 
Trump was doing to um, defund a lot of the EPA efforts to curb emissions, the clean power plan that he was trying to scrap, and putting Pruitt, in, who's a climate denier, in charge of the EPA. Those are all starting to unravel our participation anyway. But this um, article is by Brad Plummer, um, P-L-U-M-E-R, and it's on Vox, and it says, Scientists made a detailed roadmap for meeting the Paris climate goals, and it's eye-opening, and he pretty much lays out a decade-by-decade uh, actual process because the Accords left it pretty vague about what each country had to do to get there. It just said we had to keep it under 1.5 or 2. There was dialogue about that, but I think they found agreement around 2 degrees more. And even that, James Hansen said, was unsustainable, but they agreed about two. So we're going to a dangerous limit we're not sure is safe, but even to get there and prevent runaway climate change, we're going to have to do some pretty drastic and very bold things, and there's going to have to be huge leadership, but they're not impossible things. And they involve decarbonizing our pretty much entire car fleet, power plants, and a lot of other things that will take some major leadership. Which is a good thing, by the way. Decarbonizing the car fleet is fun. <laughs> <laughs> fun and important. Hey, look, uh, here's another number for context. We talked one and a half, two degrees centigrade rise in global average temperature. Uh, you basically multiply by two. You multiply by 1.8 to get Fahrenheit. So, you know, two degrees centigrade temperature rise, global average temperature translates to, uh, you know, a 3.6, almost four degree Fahrenheit. Did I, what did I just say? Did I say centigrade a second ago? I think I said two degrees centigrade is almost four degrees Fahrenheit. Okay. All right, we're going to a short break, and right after this break, we'll have an interview with Jerry Taylor from the Niskanen Center talking about his libertarian ideas for reducing carbon emissions. We'll be right back after this. I'm Matt Thompson, Santa Cruz resident and project manager for Day One Solar. I find Santa Cruz to be such a unique place. You have community-minded residents that really appreciate the beauty that surrounds us. But with that comes a responsibility to protect our natural resources for generations to come. At Day One Solar, we offer clean energy systems that will save you money while you help save our planet. Solar Energy Now. Day One Solar. Is your internet connection slow? Etheric Networks can help you. Etheric Networks is the Bay Area's locally owned alternative to DSL satellite and cable. We do a few things to make our service better. We have a great reputation and our staff is committed to providing a great user experience. We listen to our customers and listen to our staff. We pay living wages. Our staff are local Bay Area engineers and professionals. We provide flexibility and personalized service. Being in Silicon Valley, we have direct contact with the networking software and hardware companies and can bring new technologies to market before the cable and phone companies. We operate a tower-based fixed wireless network as well as a fiber optic backbone network that rings the bay. The combination creates an ultra-reliable high-capacity network that you ought to try. KSCO Business Special. Business service up to 10 megabits per second symmetric for as little as $299 a month with a $399 installation fee. Etheric Networks. Call 650-399-4200. Etheric.net. Rachel Ann Goodman. Today on the program, an interview with Jerry Taylor. Jerry Taylor was once the staff director for the Energy and Environment Tax Force at ALEC, the American Legislative Exchange Council, and he was also vice president of the Cato Institute and a self-described climate denier for many, many years. He was not only a skeptic, but he wrote talking points for media and other skeptics who denied that climate change was happening. Then he started to read the evidence, and as he did, he changed his mind. We'll hear an interview with Jerry Taylor up next on Planet Watch. Welcome to Planet Watch. I'm Rachel Ann Goodman, and I'm talking with Jerry Taylor. He's director of the Niskanen Center, which educates the public and tries to do lots of research about climate change and other big issues affecting our world. Thank you for being here with us on Planet Watch. Well, thank you for having me. I read a very interesting um, interview that um, The Intercept did with you, which got my attention, um, and it talked about your history 
I wonder if you can walk us back to the time when you started to uh, shift your views on climate change and where you were before then. Well, I was uh, hired by the uh, Cato Institute, which is one of the most prominent right-of-center think tanks in Washington, to uh, direct their energy and environmental policy operations. And, of course, in 1991, when I was hired, that put me right in the middle of an emerging political war over climate change. Uh, the position I had held at uh, uh, Cato and the one I was hired to, uh, to embrace was that uh, climate change was a real phenomenon but would likely be an uh, economic and environmental non-event, and it certainly didn't warrant uh, any aggressive federal response. But my opinions began to degrade over time as I uh, engaged in the business of wrestling with people on the other side. Now, it's important to note that most people in politics really don't make it the main point of their business to wrestle with people who disagree with them. For the most part, whether we're talking about people on the left or the right, they are speaking to a crowd or an audience which already agrees with them. And your job is to be the first amongst equals of those who are the best champions for the views that your audience already holds. So you're rarely in the business, really, of directly wrestling with arguments offered by the best and brightest of the side. But it was my ambition and the ambition of some of my colleagues at Cato to be Im involved in exactly that, to try to move needles and persuade people that uh, the, uh, the, the agendas for climate action they were embracing really were less compelling than they thought. So in the course of that debate, uh, uh, my ideas were stress test. And... Uh, and in response to those stress tests, I was forced to do a lot more due diligence with those arguments than is often the case. I mean, after all, most of us are probably somewhat less skeptical about arguments we would like to be true or that we agree with than the arguments that we don't believe are true or that we don't want to agree with. And in the course of stress testing some of the arguments that we were trafficking in on climate science, I found that increasingly that with almost no without with almost no exception uh the uh, scientific narratives that the climate skeptics were offering were based on dodgy science misrepresentation of fact uh rhetorical games that were extremely misleading cherry picked numbers uh or or just you know shoddy work and it became increasingly impossible for me to forward these arguments uh in any meaningful way given the fact that the foundation of the arguments were based on uh, uh, based on uh, narratives that I completely lost faith in. So um, in that tourney, is there something in your upbringing, in your moral compass that, that told you that it was somehow wrong or, or, you know, that you were ignoring something moral? Or what was the turning for you? What, what, what internally you think shifted? Is just facts that moved you or was there something else also going on? I think in American politics, uh, whether we're talking about climate change or health care or no matter what the issue, uh, we oftentimes conflate disagreement with some sort of moral uh, uh, issue. And I don't think that's usually very appropriate. Uh, most people that I know in the climate skeptic camp honestly uh, believe what they're saying. Uh, most people who disagree with us honestly disagree I, i'm sure there are some people who are relatively amoral about these things you know like the uh, the attorney or representative climate client uh, client for a dollar but the reality is is that most people on both sides of this issue are quite genuine in their beliefs uh so there's no real you know moral wrestling that that occurs it's really more a matter of, of motivated cognition uh we are all uh we are all inclined uh to take our to, to provide less due diligence to the arguments that we want to believe and far more skeptical uh, attention to the arguments that we don't want to believe and we tie ourselves in knots to use our reason to justify the positions and opinions and arguments uh, that we're paid to uh, forward or that we believe for ideological dogmatic or partisan reasons so this isn't really so much a moral matter i think what happened in my case was that the engines of motivated cognition began to uh, uh, fire less uh, fiercely uh, given the fact that it's very hard to come face to face with the fact that most of what you're trafficking in is falling apart around your very eyes and the thing is most of my colleagues in the climate skeptic camp 
were never put in that position because they never really did the due diligence with regards to the arguments they're affording that they should have. And again, they didn't have any real incentive to. If your only audience is Fox News or National Review or Breitbart or uh, Tea Party activists, how, uh, how seriously do you have to wrestle with the other side? Well, if your audience is utterly unfamiliar with the arguments that are offered by the other side, uh, or at least the better arguments offered by the other side or the science behind all this. They've never looked at an IPCC report. They have no interest in doing any of those sorts of things. You never really have to wrestle with this stuff, which means that you're never forced uh, in the course of your own business uh, to uh, kick tires and uh, try to find strengths and weaknesses from the arguments being forward in the debate. Do you think that there might be a tiny group of people who are paid to intentionally misrepresent the facts so that the fossil fuel industry um, can extend its life uh, span and not have a carbon tax or other financial burdens put on it? I, I watched a movie called Merchants of Doubt, which made a pretty compelling mm -hmm. case about that, that there's a group of people that really are trying to muddy the waters on purpose, like the tobacco industry did, you know, about right. the cancer dangers of smoking. Now it's being used, the same methodology seems to be being used by some in the fossil fuel industry to confuse the public intentionally. That kind of made sure. me sad to read about and hear about that. Well, uh, there are people in my old world who intentionally misrepresent data, arguments, and, uh, and, and facts. Uh, but they don't do it, in my opinion, because they're paid to do it, per se. The, end, the, the motivating factor here is not cash from fossil fuel companies or, you know, whomever may have an interest here in, in fighting back against climate action. The real motivating factor is ideology and dogma for a lot of people on the right to acknowledge that climate change is real and pose very significant risks is to is to open the door to, in their minds, massive government regulation of the economy and human behavior, and those are things that conservatives and libertarians simply don't want to do. And so uh, if the price of acknowledging that climate change is a real and present danger is to essentially give up everything that you believe about the role of government in the economy and in private life, you are going to tie yourself into intellectual pretzels to try to fight that <laughs> argument off. <laughs> and for those who are engaged in conscious misrepresentation, it's largely sort of like cheating at the game. If you want to uh, win an argument, you can do it honestly or you can do it dishonestly by misrepresenting data. And uh, there, there are people who do engage in that. Uh, but this is not a particularly unique thing to climate science or climate debates whatsoever. Uh, I think you'll find ideologically or, uh, or partisan motivated misrepresentation all over the place <laughs> in American politics on the left and the right. Uh, it's very easy to see in the climate arena. Uh, that's why we're discussing it. But I, I think that explains much of what goes on when we look at dodgy and dishonest uh, argument and uh, science. I think that's that's far more what's in play than you know just some sort of um, you know cash transaction uh, and and hired obfuscation. Sure. Well, you have a unique perspective since you were writing the skeptic talking points for a living in communicating to the tiny minority. And it is a pretty small group. I think it's like seven to 10 percent of the public is hardcore. You know what what they call dismissives. They do not. They think right. it's a hoax. What are your strongest arguments now to try to turn the very people you were um, part of in a club uh, toward the other side? And is it really worth our energy, given that there's such fast-moving science changing around us and there's other people who do uh, already believe that we need to attack attack this issue directly so is it worth it first a is it worth it to try to convince this small minority given that they're all in power maybe so and b what do you do to uh, turn their minds toward well something? that's an interesting question some people aren't simply are not going to change their minds no matter what. Uh, let's, let's face it, today in the present world, there is a significant number of Americans who believe that evolution is a fraud and that uh, uh, the Bible explains how life came to be on Earth uh, and that everything that we're taught about biology is, is some sort of, uh, 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 you know, humanistic slash socialistic nonsense. 
Well, you know, a hundred years of strong science and moral and, and intellectual uh, uh, work hasn't changed those numbers. Uh, but they're not polit politically relevant. And the reason that the uh, anti-evolutionists are not politically relevant is because they have no cover in the major parties or in the uh, uh, larger intellectual world. And I think that our task when it comes to science is to turn the debate more in that direction. So there's no way you're going to take people who are deep climate skeptics who believe that uh, climate change is a hoax per per perpetrated by communists to somehow destroy the American economy. Uh, that, that ship has sailed. They'll take that belief to their grave. Uh, but what is worth doing is talking to opinion leaders uh, on, in the Republican Party and on the right generally about why these narratives that they're hearing from Fox News and whatnot are nonsense. Uh, and if you can move their opinions, you can move, broadly speaking, a lot of the right that will follow in their wake. So, for instance, in 2008, the Republican Party nominated John McCain for president of the United States, who embraced climate action policies that were to the left of what was subsequently proposed by President Obama. And the Republican platform in 2008, when it came to climate, could have been written by Hillary Clinton. Uh, how, do, how the heck did that happen? <laughs> did it happen because there was a lot of retail uh, changing of minds in 2008? <laughs> no, it happened because Republicans, uh, like Democrats, follow the cues from their uh, uh, political champions. Their political champion in 2008 was John McCain, and he embraced climate action, and so did they. And, in fact, you can see in public opinion polls that Republican support for climate action peaked at around the time that John McCain was nominated for president of the United States. Uh, so our strategy in trying to move uh, needles in the Republican Party and on the right is not to engage in every, you know, uh, spat in a uh, rotary club or in a uh, obscure talk radio station. It's to talk to Republican office holders, political elites, and the people who have influence with them, and to make the point that to be scientific, to, to embrace science is not to embrace liberalism, it's to be literate. And there is absolutely nothing about how you feel about the role of government or uh, free market economies that should color how you view simple atmospheric physics. That this is just ridiculous, that this is a, uh, a matter of ideological identity for right-of-center Republicans. Science is what it is. And that Republicans do have a very good answer to climate change, arguably a better answer than is trafficked uh, by the Democratic Party, which is to harness price signals and market mechanisms to, re to uh, decarbonize the economy uh, and leave it to market actors and when to decide when, where, and how to go about that business, uh, guided through prices which accurately reflect the risks associated with, cons with uh, consuming carbon and producing other greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. So you're talking about carbon, well. carbon tax or some sort of fee and <laughs> dividend project like the carbon... Yeah, I mean, what you do with the revenue is a separate yeah. question, but yeah. the fact is we need to price the risks associated for cl with climate change. Even climate skeptics of the sort that uh, I used to uh, uh, be engaged with at the Cato Institute accept that there are risks associated with climate change, and they accept the fact that there's a lot of uncertainties. They use these uncertainties as a reason not to act, but you can just but it cuts both ways. I mean, for instance, there are a lot of uncertainties about what. Iran is going to do with nuclear weaponry. We know the most likely outcome is they aren't going to use nuclear weapons. Uh, but there's a chance they will. We hedge our bets, and we accept the fact there's a, di a wide distribution of possible outcomes, and we have to consider the full distribution of possible outcomes we make our policy. I mean, right after 9-11, people forget that Dick Cheney, then president, vice president of the United States, uh, right after 9-11, when the issue of Pakistan's... Uh, 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 husbanding of, of nuclear technology was in play. There was a concern that maybe Pakistani scientists would uh, smuggle either weaponry or the know-how for how to build weaponry, weaponry to al-Qaeda. Uh, Vice President Cheney said at the time that uh, if there's even a 1% chance that nuclear technology or weaponry could leak from uh, Pakistan's government to the hands of al-Qaeda or other Islamic terrorists, we have to take that possibility as a certainty as far as U.S. response. Now, imagine had he said the same thing about climate change. So, in other words, conservatives and other spheres of public policy, particularly in foreign policy, understand full well that we have to hedge against risk. Why would that not stand when it, came, when it comes to the climate, particularly since 
all of the scientists that the climate skeptics, you know, trot up to Capitol Hill to testify uh, uh, for the uh, Republican side of these uh, conversations, they all acknowledge climate change is happening. They all acknowledge that industrial emissions are an important driver for that climate change. They all agree that there will be warming in the future. And they all agree, for the most part, in fact, I don't think with virtually any disagreement, that that warming is within the range of the likely outcomes offered by the IPCC and that there's a lot of uncertainty. Well, if that's the case, then why in the heck should we acknowledge that those risks exist and then hedge against them? Well, why, why, why indeed, um, Jerry Taylor, how, how did they answer you? Um, there's such silence right now, and we have a president saying that he thinks it's a hoax, but we're not sure how deeply any of his views are held. So how do you talk to this particular crowd? Are they out after a while because they're so extreme? I mean, we could argue that we'll just wait till the next batch of Republicans comes in because this particular batch seems um, they, they privately believe that it's happening, but publicly they can't say that. And so, Well, I don't believe that Donald Trump and the alt-right is long for this world in American politics. So there will be a post-Trump Republican Party probably sooner than... Uh, people might have otherwise anticipated and what that republican party is going to look like in the rubble of the collapse of the trump administration is a very much an open question it turns out that when you talk to republican office holders on capitol hill as we do on a daily basis or if you talk to their senior staff or the senior republican committee staff in the uh, committees of jurisdiction you'll find that privately they are frustrated at the position that the party is in right now with this orthodox denialism. They believe that climate change does indeed impose risks. They believe for both policy and political reasons that the Republican Party has to offer something other than no-nothingism when it comes to climate. And they believe that pricing climate risks is probably the right way for the party to go. So there's a surprising amount of agreement with the arguments that I'm making here with you uh, within the GOP, at, at least on Capitol Hill. The problem for, for uh, elected Republican office holders is that it's not obvious to them how they can get from their current position to this new position while surviving primary challenges and upri potential uprisings from their base. Uh, after all, they represent a party that is generally fairly hostile to taxation, and a carbon tax or any sort of carbon pricing regime would probably represent one of the largest tax increases in American history. Now, there's ways you can deal with that by rebating the revenues and, and keeping it revenue neutral and all that. But the reality is it's not obvious, if you're a Republican officeholder, how you're going to embrace aggressive climate action uh, and survive politically. And, you know, where's the window of opportunity going to be? Can you do so without being knocked off in a Republican primary? Uh, these are open questions. And, and, and especially right now, if you're a Republican who's thinking about making a break for it on climate and, and, and uh, define the party leadership, well, given everything else that's happening around you in the Republican Party, if you're going to go uh, rebel, are you really going to pick climate as your main point of rebellion? There are a lot of places right now <laughs> Republicans are entertaining rebellion because they're, uh, uh, they're, they're, they're afraid now that they're in some sort of political death spiral. So, you know, things will probably take some time to play out, but the, the, the tectonic plates within the Republican Party uh, are not stable when it comes to climate, and they're moving, and everyone up there who does business on the Hill knows it. Fascinating uh, times to be in. And, and what someone said is, you know, the tobacco story took 50 years before, you know, the people who lied to us about cancer were punished. And but we don't have 50 years to turn this boat. It's uh, needing to turn much quicker. Some of the science is changing much quicker than um, even scientists had predicted, um, especially sea level rise has now got a new report coming out every year. And by the time it's published, it seems to be outdated. So, um, we may have to turn quicker than the United States political system is prepared to do. Does that just mean we've ceded it to other countries, and can we do that? <laughs> well, I agree with you. Uh, the the case for uh, alarm with regards to uh, what may very well be in our future for uh, as a consequence of climate change is becoming more and more compelling uh, with every passing year. This is not a uh, a, 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 a 
policy or scientific fad. Uh, the, the evidence for the seriousness of climate change mounts continually, and we can see around us the consequences. And that's one of the reasons why you see a lot of Republicans peeling off on this issue. One of the common denominators is they're in coastal regions, and they can see what sea level rise is doing and will likely do to their districts in the future. Uh, but I wouldn't necessarily be so despairing of federal response, uh, even given where the Republican Party is today. People forget that if you asked you know, tobacco uh, uh, officials or people who are investing in the tobacco industry or people who are regulating the tobacco industry in 1985, what the prospects were for all that followed in the early 1990s with the, uh, with the tobacco deal and the regulation of tobacco products from FDA and whatnot. Most people said that would never happen. And yet it happened very, very quickly. Uh, policy on issues like this can change far faster than, than people sometimes appreciate. The tobacco experience is a perfect example of that. What caused, I think, the tobacco uh, uh, industry to collapse so quickly is that there were just a declining number of smokers. Right. As, as your population of smokers continues to decline, the political opposition to tobacco regulation likewise declines. And once it hits a tipping point, uh, things move very fast. The analogy in the climate arena is as renewable energy and clean energy and low-carbon energy continues to increase market share, continues to see production cost decreases, as it becomes increasingly obvious that we don't need to rely on fossil fuels to drive this economy indefinitely, then it's going, I believe, you're going to see a, a situation where the collapse of the skeptic community happens on a great pace. Because their main argument now, the argument I used to traffic in when I was at Cato, is that if you want to decarbonize the economy as a response to climate change, go to Pennsylvania, Dutch country, and you'll find out what the world's going to look like, right? You're going to have to get rid of industry. You're going to have to get rid of industrial civilization. We're going to have to go back to some pastoral world. We can't run the economy on 12th century energy like wind and sun. That's, that's how we ran the medieval world. We got out of that through fossil fuels. That's a very compelling story, and maybe 20 years ago there was some merit to it. But today, fossil fuels are losing the race. And that's increasingly clear to everyone in the market. And as that becomes increasingly clear to the public as well uh, and political actors, I think you're going to see the, the uh, table set for some very quick and positive policy change. Well, I certainly hope you're right. You're listening to Planet Watch. I'm Rachel Ann Goodman. I'm speaking with Jerry Taylor. He is head of the Niskanen Center, which is a think tank and um, institute which is pushing back against some of the climate denial and trying to educate uh, members of Congress to act more uh, forcefully on the issue of climate change and other big issues. Um, just a couple of more thoughts, and this more goes back to an interesting kind of personal side of the story about you. Um, so the Heartland Institute is one of the big um, centers for, <laughs> I dare say, misinformation. They just put out a quote-unquote textbook and sent it to all high school teachers in the United States. And it turns out your brother runs it. So it must be very awkward in some dinners and Thanksgivings and things like that where the two of you are on different sides of a pretty heated issue. How do you deal with that in your family? Well, let's just, just to ball for some precision's sake, my brother does not run the Heartland uh, Institute. He was the director of their climate operations for pr almost a decade, maybe okay. about a decade. And he recently left Heartland. He now is in a new organization that he's formed called Spark of Freedom, or Sparks of Freedom. I'm sorry, I forget the exact title. So, but it is true that Heartland's rise as probably the major actor in climate skepticism occurred under my brother's watch. And uh, so, yeah, it, my brother and I don't agree. Uh, how we manage that, well, we're brothers first and family first, but this is a topic that we are generally best to agree to disagree about and not discuss very frequently. Sure, and you're both very effective at what you do, so kudos to both of you for having a family that's very smart, obviously, and, and really good at um, communication at about two very different sides of a very compelling issue. Well, you know what? I think sometimes people forget that it takes a lot of intellectual uh, uh, capability to twist yourself in the nuts to continue to make the climate skeptic case. Most people who are not so engaged in this discussion give up the ghost when hit by an avalanche of evidence that climate change is real. Uh, when you look at surveys where they... Uh, check to see whether climate skeptics are as knowledgeable about climate science and the state of science and fundamental physics and things like that as climate realists, 
they find out the climate skeptics usually tend to rate higher on all these metrics. So how, how can this possibly be? Well, the main reason is that you've got to be You've got to have a lot of IQ to convince yourself the story that climate change is some sort of hoax, given 30 years of mounting evidence. Uh, that's not to say that only smart people are climate skeptics or, or whatnot or, that, uh, uh, or, or anything beyond that, but it is to say that it takes a lot of intellectual energy to convince yourself uh, uh, of the story that climate change is some sort of non-event. Uh, and I think that kind of explains why you often find, ironically, very smart people on the other side of this conversation. And we know a lot about the way people think in terms of tribes that, like you said earlier, if you subscribe to the Tea Party, you have to buy that climate change is a hoax that comes with a package and, and you would be disloyal to your tribe. And that's very powerful in human psychology, we're finding, that people you know, like you said, that hasn't always been the case. It's certainly not always been the case that Republicans don't believe climate change. But this new wing that's very anti-government um, seems to have attached itself in that logical knot, Gordian knot. What I find ironic about that argument that, you know, more climate action means more big government is that if we do nothing, it seems like we're going to have more big government in our doorstep because the National Guard's going to be coming to, you know, put enforce a lot of martial law and order on chaos when big storms come and we're going to be spending a lot more on recovery than we are on prevention. So it's kind of the irony of that big government argument is if we do nothing, we're going to have even bigger interventions. Well, that... Which, which which presupposes the climate change is real. Now, if you're a climate skeptic and you think it's all a hoax and you're going to have no such thing, you're not worried about the National Guard, you know, seizing property. You're not worried about, you know, the metastasization of regulation under uh, EPA uh, Secretary Bill McKibben, say, in, a, in an Elizabeth Warren administration. These things aren't going to happen because there is no such thing as climate change and it's going to be a non-event. So that's how the... Uh, the right looks at this. But, you know, the, the point you made about how people uh, tend to move in with, uh, based on tribal cues with regards to what your crowd is supposed to think or, you know, what you're supposed to believe on certain issues, yeah, it's, it, it, it's a desultory situation, but it is what it is, and it extends well beyond climate. In almost all public policy issues, uh, people follow the cues uh, that uh, they pick up from their political champions. But that's also an opportunity for climate realists. In other words, if that is true, then the key to moving conservatives on climate change isn't to go into the weeds and win an, an endless Vietnam-style war on Fox News debating every climate skeptic who you know, crawls out from under a rock. The key to moving this debate is to change what Republican elites and political actors are saying about climate change. And as I said, most of them feel as if they're almost hostages to climate denialism and they want a way out. And I, I am fairly optimistic that once the uh, Republican Party shakes itself of Donald Trump and the alt-right, uh, the conditions will be set for a rebranding of the party and some political entrepreneurship on this front. And you may very well find that uh, Republicans are more inclined to do something about uh, climate change in a meaningful sense uh, in, in a fashion that is almost unimaginable today. And have you uh, mapped out what that escape route might be for them to articulate it in a way that they can see would um, possibly save their hides if they did want to shift? Yeah, we, we argue that the, uh, the, the best and most efficient response to climate change is simply to tax greenhouse gas emissions. And that tax... You know, it's a matter of uh, of the political landscape with regards to how much uh, burden we can really we can really expect from a tax like that. But we endorse uh, somewhere between a $25 and a $45 carbon tax that would increase somewhat above inflation every year, and the revenues from that tax would be used to help compensate the coal country and to take care of. 
the, uh, the industry and the work base that has relied on coal and other fossil fuels. So if there are going to be winners and losers from climate action, and unfortunately some of the winners, uh, uh, some of the losers are in coal country, then, you know, we probably have a, uh, an obligation to provide some sort of compensation. Uh, and then using some of that money to help uh, research and develop new low, uh, economically viable low-carbon energies and rebate the rest of the American people to reduce the burden of other taxes. That makes a lot of sense. It's something that economists on the left and the right embrace. Uh, conservatives like Greg Mankiw uh, at Harvard he used to be a, uh, at the economic advisor to the George uh, uh, W. Bush administration. Uh, Marty Feldstein he used to be Reagan's economic advisor. I mean, this is something that most conservatives think you know makes absolute sense. Uh, I think that's the right escape uh, vehicle. It provides for robust carbon action. It uses markets to do it, and it does not grow government. Uh, but there are other escape vehicles that are in play. We'll just have to see what uh, makes sense. Unfortunately, you know, this is politics, so uh, good policy and good politics, uh, you have to hope that they intersect, but they sometimes don't. Well, we wish you all the best of success. Um, the world depends on us all coming together around this issue, so I really appreciate you spending the time with us here on Planet Watch. I've been speaking with Jerry Taylor. He is head of the Niskanen Center in Washington, D.C., and thank you so much for joining us here on the program. It's been a really wonderful conversation. I wish you all the best of luck. Thank you, Rachel. Good to be with you. All right. You take care. This is Planet Watch, and thank you so much for tuning in. If you'd like to write to us or comment on the interview or get more information, you can email us at radioplanetwatch at gmail.com. I'm Rachel Ann Goodman along with Joe Jordan. Yeah. Hi, folks. We've just got a few minutes left, but I just want to compliment Rachel on that uh, masterpiece of an interview. I mean, I, that was a real gem, and I think, and, and of course, Rachel knows how to, I guess, go, I want to urge her to apply for an award, a media award. That is an award-winning interview. And then, of course, <laughs> our show is going to win awards at some point, too, because we're doing good, important stuff, and we're having fun doing it, despite the ugliness of a lot of what's going on out there. But, you know, this guy, you, you hear him talk. You know, he, he's a decent fellow who gets along with people, even his brother. And, you know, and I have the same thing with relatives back east, you know, who we, we love each other, but we're just at opposite sides of the fence. And I keep saying, look, if we just had time to really get together for, you know, a beer or whatever for an hour or two, you know, then we could really. But anyway, um, speaking of awards, by the way, I should do a little plug. Rachel and I, way back in 2001 or so, we worked on a national award winning uh, radio series called The DNA Files. And in particular, I was involved in the first five minutes of an hour-long segment on the origins of life and the most extreme conditions on Earth where life can survive, you know, boiling hot springs in Yellowstone National Park. And they're thought to be closely related to the earliest life forms on Earth. So anyway, if you Google DNA files, uh, you know, or get in touch with us by that email Rachel just gave you, and you can find out about that. There were two series of DNA files. This is the one that was back in 2001. Um, and by the way, everything this guy uh, just said, this guy, uh, Jerry Taylor, who I would love to meet soon um, in D.C. I go there every now and then to visit those relatives in Virginia. Um, he, uh, it's all relevant to what we had on the show back in April 30th on CCL, Citizens Climate Lobby, and their whole mission to put a price on carbon. And again, you pollute, you pay. And we've got to figure out, all right, how much is poison worth <laughs> circulating in our economy? What do we have to pay to, you know, do things right and get the unpoisoned things such as solar and wind? and all the green uh, renewable energy technologies. Um, hey, by the way, if you saw something bright in the sky last night right next to the moon, I mean, this is old news now, but it'll be still kind of close tonight, just not as... Last night, did you see that bright dot like almost right on top of the moon? Right next to the moon. It was Jupiter. And so if you want to know where Jupiter is, just go out tonight and look and the only really bright dot anywhere near the moon. Uh, if the moon's high in the sky, it'll be to the right of the moon tonight. I didn't see a probe diving into it, though. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no Juno. So keep an eye on, on the sky for that one. And, um, well, yeah, so, so part of the mission of this show is to not just preach to the choir all the time, but to go behind so-called quote-unquote enemy lines and win new hearts and minds. And this was just a quintessential example of that, and more better later. <laughs> but uh, let's see. And uh, oh, I did give you a riddle last week, and I'm going to give you a one-week extension, okay? But I'm going to state yes, it sir. again very quickly, okay? <laughs> the riddle was if you have an exactly one-mile-long, totally straight piece of railroad track on the, um, on the ground, just a rail, railroad rail that's exactly a mile long, and it's tacked down at the two ends, 
Okay, and now somebody sneaks in in the middle of the night and solders in an extra foot of rail. So now you've got a mile and a foot, but it's still tacked down at the two ends. Well, then what has to happen? It can't fit on the flat ground. It has to bow up in the arc of a circle, right? The question is, in the middle, how high does that curved rail that's now a mile plus a foot long how high above the ground does it get in the middle we had a couple listeners who guessed and um stay tuned for the suspenseful conclusion next week because hey we got about 30 seconds left for the music and everything now and rachel's going to give you the outro and uh well okay on into the beyond here Thanks for listening. This is Planet Watch, produced at KSCO AM 1080. Special thanks to our engineer, Jason, and our interns, Tommy Martin, Cade Pastelnik, and Caroline King. And thanks to our companion, Eugene Beer in Columbus, Ohio, for running our program there. For more information, go to our archives at zbsradio.com.